Welcome. If you watch Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, you've noticed it's a very long film, three hours, more than three hours. This is because a central subplot of the film is Oppenheimer's troubles after he has delivered uh, his mission in Manhattan Project, after he has create he has helped create the the bomb. His problems with the United States, the state and its bureaucracy when it comes to the communist infiltration, both in the atomic project, but also this was the time where many in the American society were freaking out that there's been a communist takeover, an attempt to take over the state. Many call it a red scare, other call it a hysteria, other call it a parania, and it's the atmosphere that gave rise to what many people know as McCarthyism. Here's the thing. One of my favorite sayings goes something like, the fact that you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not after you. So the fact that McCarthy, for example, was someone whose methods were dubious and was someone of very questionable moral character doesn't mean that the worries about Soviet infiltration in the top echelons of American society and the American states were not legitimate. So in Oppenheimer, we get two claims. The one, uh, we two claims are alluded. The one is that there was an unreasonable worry about Soviet infiltration. And the other thing is that part of this unreasonable worry was the targeting of individuals just for their ideas. That you had these young idealistic communists and they were targeted for their Okay, maybe they were at the Communist Party or one of the fronts of the Communist Party, but this is no reason to try to blacklist them from polite society. So these are the two things we will question today. And of course, don't go anywhere till the end because we're going to answer the question, was Oppenheimer a Soviet spy? Because at the end of the day, this was the big question in the minds of the people who went after Oppenheimer. Again, if you watch the film, you you can't have missed it. It's basically one third of the of the film is this subplot. So my first claim is that the Soviet infiltration in the American society was not only happening, but it was actually way more significant than even the most, quote, paranoid person could imagine in the 30s or the 40s. So Again, irrespective of what happened later with McCarthy and his accusations, even McCarthy had no idea how bad things were in the 30s and the 40s when it comes to the Soviet infiltration. How do we know this? We know this today from different sources that back then were not available. One source, the, the obvious source, is spies who either changed their minds and voluntarily gave up secrets like uh, Whittaker Ch Chambers. You probably know him. It's the guy who later wrote the horrible critique of Atlas Shrugged in the National Review. Or from spies who were caught on the act and then they start giving names. But we also know it since the 90s from cables that the security service of the United States had already decrypted and have already intercepted from the 40s, but they couldn't release them back then because they didn't want the Soviets to know that they had intercepted their codes. And most importantly, 
we know way more things today based on the, let's put the, the KGB files that were open for a short period after the, Sov- the fall of the Soviet Union. So between the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Putin, there were some years where Yeltsin was a bit too liberal with giving us access to some files. Actually, what happened is that their secret services were in such disarray, their pension funds were in, in, in collapse, that we, money could give you access to some of these files. So based on all this, let's answer the questions. Was there a significant Soviet infiltration? The answer is yes, it was. In the 30s and the 40s, at some point, there were 200 spies operating in the United States. And the interesting thing is that out of these 200, a significant amount, we don't know who they are. We know their code names, but we haven't cross-referenced who the code name refers to. But there are many for whom we know things. And when we say spies, someone could think, okay, there was like a third-class accountant. Okay, who cares? They didn't have access to anything important. But here I'm talking about spies in high places. We know, for example, that at least one congressman was an NKVD, that was the predecessor of KGB, spy. Now, this guy was not an ideologue. He just did it for money. He was a scum of the earth type of guy. But still, you had a member of Congress who was in the payroll of the KGB. I'm going to call it KGB because it's a name more familiar to you. Again, back then, it was not called KGB. We had top diplomats. Diplomats were involved after the war in the construction of the post-war order. And there's very, very strong, very, very strong argument that a top diplomat like, like uh, Albert Hiss was someone who was co- cooperating with Soviet Union because he thought that this would be good for the balance of power post-war. Like, see altruism at play, right? Like, why should only the Soviet Union be, uh, sorry, why only why should only the United States be powerful? So actually, Hiss was not even a fervent communist. He just did it because he thought that uh, it's better for uh, for the balance of the war. We have one of the top later architects of the IMF being someone who was collaborating with NKVD. Again, what's the reason? The reason was that he thought that the United States should not be so powerful. So again, we're not talking about someone who is a very conscious communist, but someone who sees Soviet Union sympathetically. And of course here, I'm talking about uh, Harry Dexter White. And we have government officials. We have many, many engineers. So the number one profession that had the most spies were engineers. We'll see why. And also we had scientists, which will take us to the the atomic bomb uh, project. So how did they operate in the United States? KGB had some significant presence. But they also had help from feet on the ground, which were many members of the American Communist Party, the Communist Party of the United States, the people who in the film are portrayed as these young idealists. So what would usually happen is the Communist Party core activists. So this was a secret. So you had to be like deep in the Communist Party. Do that. The Communist Party would spot, would spot someone. They would say, oh, this guy is in an important position. This guy is a friend. So they would go to the KGB agent and say, hey, here's a guy we can recruit. And me having spent years in the communist youth, this is more or less how today communist youth operates. Of course, not in terms of spies, but 
You spot someone, and that someone might not be a party member, but is someone who helps you, who gives you legitimacy, who might pass the party line on their particular field. Now, pre-World War II, the number one area where you would find most spies was in universities. And this was for two reasons. Number one, because Americans are so naive, they welcomed Soviet, uh, they welcomed Soviet students with open arms, often through exchange programs and often through programs that were, uh, that were funded by very prestigious institutions, for example, the Rockefeller Institute. Again, what naivety, right? Like, hey, there's this country over there. Their ideology wants to destroy us, but let's be open and welcome their people. So particularly in MIT, you had many, many Soviet spies. So universities was an easy area to penetrate, but also knowledge is easier to steal from a university because it's open. Quite often scientists discuss with each other. You don't have trademarks. So if you want to gain knowledge, you want to penetrate the universities. So the plan was, best case, these Soviet agents would become, would follow a career that would allow them to do spying while being in the United States. Worst case, they get the knowledge and then they go back to the Soviet Union and they apply it. Or again, it's difficult for me to highlight how naive the United States were. You might have heard of a guy called Tupolev, or maybe you don't know Tupolev, you know the Tupolev airplanes. Well, the name is from a Russian, uh, from a Soviet aviation expert, a guy called Tupolev, who in the 30s was touring the United States for months with a camera. He would go to factories, to research centers, and the Americans, again, very naively would tell him, these are our plans. So this is how the Soviet Union created a very, very good military and non-military aviation with secrets that they got from the United States. But also, when it comes to their tanks technology, their military vehicles technology. So at some point, the Soviets went to the United States. They went to an individual, to, to a private uh, manufacturer, a guy called Christie, and they got tanks from him. So they weren't allowed to get tanks from the state, but they got them from, a, from an individual. And they camouflaged their tanks in tractors. So they took out, imagine, like they took out the cannons. And in customs, they told them, these are tractors. And of course, again, the naive Americans, back in the 30s, they weren't too much, they didn't pay much attention to the Soviet Union. So it was, okay, you can have them. And these are the tractors the tanks, which later became the infamous T-series. So you have the T-34, later the T-72. These were very good Soviet tanks. Again, they were the result of knowledge that they took from the United States. So this was the most prominent part of spying in the 30s. Industrial spying, particularly in the areas engineering and military engineering and aviation. But I know most of you are here because you want to know about the atomic uh, project, the Manhattan Project, and about Oppenheimer. But before we get to that, let me say that today's episode is sponsored by Quen Cordaire Fine Art. Quen Cordaire Fine Art has been making the world an even more beautiful place for 27 years. 
It specializes in romantic realist paintings and sculptures, and the gallery collection emphasizes themes which celebrate the moments of happiness, joy, and success possible to man on earth. So acquire art that you will want to live with by visiting them online at cordaire.com or go in their Napa, California and Jackson, Wyoming locations. They also have a new line of Ayn Rand portrait prints. And for every print that you purchase using the code ARCUK, Quen Cordaire Fine Art will donate $25 to Ayn Rand Center UK. So beautiful life celebrating art. What was not life celebrating was Soviet spying in the atomic project. So the Soviets were on, on to were trying to get the secret of the new of the of the nuclear bomb already before the Manhattan project started. So they had their eyes on the German project but they had a much better penetration in the British project. But till February 1944, they didn't have anything. So they knew that something was happening, but they, they didn't have actual information. And again, KGB, back then with a different name, they had the whole project throwing their best resources when it comes to getting the nuclear secret. And they named this project Project Enormous, Enormous, in, that was the, like the Russian name. And then suddenly things started coming their way. So the first thing that came their way was through a guy which you might have heard of, a guy called Julius Rosenberg. He was the guy who, the only civilian with his wife, who was executed later in the United States for treason. Interestingly, I grew up in my room. There was a poster of many revolutionary heroes. One of them was Rosenberg. Back then in the 90s in Greece, the idea was Rosenberg was uh, innocent. Okay, how innocent was he? Well, starting in 1944, he spots a guy called Ras Maknat, who was working as, he was, he was an engineer involved with the Manhattan Project. But he was not in Los Alamos. Los Alamos is where the actual bomb was created, where Oppenheimer was. He was in a different project, in, in Oak, he was in the Oak Ridge field. So he gave some information, but it was not like information from the belly of the beast. Soon, though, the Soviets will, would get information from the belly of the beast, from the project where Oppenheimer himself was. Was it from Oppenheimer? We'll, you'll see. The main piece of information came from a guy called Fuchs, Klaus Fuchs. He was a German physicist and communist. Fuchs started working in the UK in their atomic project, and he was such a devoted communist that once he realized what he was working on while in the UK, he found people from the underground communist mechanism of the German Communist Party. So he was a German, and there were exiled German communists in England. They were the lucky ones because most of the exiled German communists in Soviet Union were liquidated during the Stalinist purges. Anyway, that's a different discussion. Anyway, so he goes to the communists and says, hey, I'm working on something important. Hook me up with the Soviets. I have things to tell them. Again, this guy was, Fuchs was a devoted communist. So, but then Fuchs is transferred to the United States. So again, he's transferred to Los Alamos and he reads his contract. He, he finds in his away when, when he's having a leave 
he finds Soviets and he passes them many secrets. And this guy was such a sincere, for lack of a better word, communist that he declined the money that KGB was like, hey, dude, thank you. Take money. I don't want money. I'm doing this for the cause. What happens to Fuchs? At some point, he got... Uh, the the British, many years later, got suspicious of him. He actually said, okay, look, let's not make this weird. I admit everything. He gave names. So he got only some years in prison. Then he got released. He ended up in East Germany. Again, the guy was a devoted communist. He ended up in the Central Committee of the East German ruling Communist Party. It wasn't called Communist Party. It was called like the Unity Party. But anyway, he... He died as a hero of communism for his uh, spying work. The most interesting case in Los Alamos, although Fuchs was the most, so so Fuchs was working on the infusion uh, of the bomb, but the most interesting case in Los Alamos was a different guy, a guy called Theodore Hall. Theodore Hall was a child wonder. We're talking about the guy. You know, like Mike Ross from the from Suits. We're talking about this type of brain, which is very, very rare. The guy at 18 years old, he he graduated Harvard. Not he was admitted to Harvard. He graduated Harvard at 18. Then he's transferred in Los Alamos. And again, this guy is such a communist that in his first leave, he goes to New York and he goes basically around. Then, hey, do you know any Soviet spy? I have things to tell them. He finds like local communists. He literally, I think he goes to the Soviet embassy and is like, hey guys, I have things to tell you. And like, Soviets are like, who's this guy? Anyway, he managed to find some, uh, a link with the Soviets through another local communist, not the not Rosenberg, but someone else who was also, who was doing this uh, a lot, hooking up people of influence with the KGB. And he told them many things. There was a third person in Los Alamos, a, a guy called David Greenglass. Not, he was a mechanist, not such an important figure. Again, recruited by, recruited by Rosenberg. So the Soviets had three people in Los Alamos who we know for sure were spies. What did they contribute together with the other people who worked in the Manhattan Project in different, uh, in, different, in different sites. They contribute information that was of such a big volume. Think about nine copies of Atlas Rack, the one on top of the other. We are talking about this amount of technical information. Did the Soviets use that information? You bet they did. Soviets basically had the cheat sheet for their nuclear bomb. So the Soviets managed to get their nuclear bomb. They did their first nuclear test 29th of August 1949, which was a huge shock for the United States because no one expected they would do it so quickly. And the secret was, of course, they had the cheat sheet. Would Soviet Union build the nuclear bomb irrespective of the information they got from their spies? Probably yes, but much later, or a bit later, or some years later, and at a significant higher cost. Significant higher cost. Soviet Union had good scientists, but not good scientists enough to do what the Manhattan Project did. So there, there would be more, there would be some 
delay. And most importantly, they did it at a relatively low cost because, again, they knew everything how to do it from the secrets they stole. So Soviet Union was in disarray after the Second World War. The whole country was destroyed. So they saved a lot of money. So these idealists in the movie, these young uh, people who were persecuted for their ideas, these people abetted the most murderous regime of the 20th century to get not only the nuclear bomb, but also to get a good arm. Would, for example, Stalin support the invasion of South Korea by North Korea if he didn't have the atomic bomb? Who knows, but maybe not. Or without the, the, the diplomatic blunders of American diplomacy, would China fall in the hands of communists? Who knows? But what we do know is that the people who were spying for Soviet Union and were working on Soviet interests played a role in these big events. And now the important question is, okay, the Soviets had spies, but what about Oppenheimer? Was Oppenheimer himself a Soviet spy? I will give you the answer in a second. First, let me say a big thank you to Free Trade, to Jonathan, and to Catherine. And let me once more recognize the contribution of Quen Corder Fine Art. Quen Corder Fine Art has been making the world an even more beautiful place for 27 years. Romantic realist painting and sculptures celebrating the moments of happiness and joy which is available to man. Go to Corder.com or visit their actual gallery in Napa, California and Jackson, Wyoming. Also, they have the new Ayn Rand portraits. And if you buy them and you put the code ARCUK, Quen Corder Fine Art will donate $25 to Ayn Rand Center UK. So a huge thank you to Quen Corder Fine Art. So what about Oppenheimer? Was Oppenheimer a communist? Let's begin with this. At some point in his life, the answer is probably yes. Before 1942-1943, Oppenheimer was involved with many communist fronts. What is a communist front? Communist front is, again, I know this from my communist year. Some, uh, the, the communists create, let's say, a student union or an engineer's union or an artist's union, and it's called something which doesn't include the name communist. But everyone knows it's an organization by the Communist Party. So Oppenheimer was was member of such groups. There's very strong evidence that his brother was a communist, that women he associated with were communists, and there's no question he had very, very strong communist sympathies. Some people claim he was a secret member of the Communist Party. We don't know this, but what we do know is that he was almost at some point anything but a member. So the communists considered him one of us. However, however, Oppenheimer seems to have a change of heart the more he gets into the, the moment he gets into the Manhattan Project. So who knows what it was? Maybe the, the Hitler-Stalin pact in 39. So as time goes on, Oppenheimer is a bit colder towards his communist sympathies. He actually tells people he worked with, hey, leave aside uh, like the communist stuff. And when he enters the Manhattan Project, of course, they know his former uh, communist uh, sympathies. They vet him. And he actually gives names. He says, this and this and this and this person, uh, don't put them on. They're a liability. 
they're hard hardline communists, forget them. Was he a Soviet agent though? Because you could say that's that's exactly what a spy would do, right? He would say, yeah, I'm not a spy. These are communists, don't put them in, so that he would then give the secrets to the Soviets. Oppenheimer was not a Soviet spy. Oppenheimer was not a Soviet spy. How do we know that? Because we know that the Soviet secret services tried to get to him. We know that they tried not once, they tried many times to get to him, and we know they failed. So say whatever you want about Oppenheimer, his moral compass maybe was a bit broken, maybe he shouldn't have the opinions he had uh, about the nuclear bomb that he thought it was uh, unnecessary later, or he wasn't sure what he did, or he thought that the United States shouldn't have the monopoly on the nuclear bomb, we could say he was wrong, whatever. One thing is for sure. Oppenheimer was not a Soviet agent. And people who tell you, we know for sure Oppenheimer was a party member and... Uh, no, the one thing we know for sure is that he was not a Soviet agent. How do we know? Because in the declassified KGB files, we can find information by people who say, I tried to get to Oppenheimer we didn't manage to get this guy. What a pity. We thought this guy would be welcome because of his ideas. Turns out he's not. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say today. So what's the what's the sum up very, very quickly? Soviet infiltration in high echelons of American science, diplomacy, even the atomic project was present. And actually, it was worse than what people thought back then. So, but, so let's say for the atomic spies, today we know more names than they knew back then based on the declassified files. So the infiltration was important. The infiltration was significant. It created results. It boosted Soviet technology, military, engineering. Uh, it, it accelerated the access of the Soviet Union to the atomic bomb. And the people who have participated in it to put it mildly, reserve every moral scorn, we could even say they have blood in their hands. And we can say things about Oppenheimer himself and what were his politics and his ideas. But one thing we know, Oppenheimer was not a Soviet spy. So many thanks to, again, to Free Trade, to, Free Trade, to Jonathan and to Catherine for your contributions. I really appreciate it. A huge thank you to Quen Corder Fine Art for sponsoring this episode. Looks like whenever I have a solo, Quen Cordaire Fine Art is the sponsor. And someone wrote on Twitter how good it is that they enjoy the episodes, but also they know that this episode is sponsored by people they appreciate, like the Corders. So many thanks. Upcoming shows, 6 p.m. UK time, of course, the reality show. Should we have citizenship tests for voting? I think this is an idea that Vivek, uh, what's his surname, the, the presidential candidate, threw on the table. And 7 p.m. UK time, Finance Friday with Jim Brown and special guest Clive Davis, the director of Ex Nihilo, The Truth About Money. So more stuff about interesting historical, communist, whatever things are troubling you next week. If you have any idea about any episode you want me to make, get in touch with Razi see what's the what's the what we can do how you can sponsor it what's my feelings about edward teller okay 
the thing is, I need to live literally within 10 seconds. So tell you what, dear producer, I will send a written reply to our friend. Thank you very much, Frank, for your super chat. There's no time. Uh, dear producer, drop me a slack. I will send my five lines in two hours from now because duty calls me. I have to be in an ARU class. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.